James' readers were living in very tough times. Uh, Many of them were Jewish Christians who were being persecuted for their faith. Persecution, of course, poses many problems, particularly for the early Christians here in the first century. And one of those problems may be somewhat surprising to us. See, persecution actually constituted a temptation for some of these early Christians. Temptation to sin. You you might be asking, okay, how? In, In what way? Well, well, first of all, many Christians were inclined to, re- to reply in kind, just like you might be tempted to reply when someone is nasty to you. you, you know, the, the temptation might be, well, hey, they hurt me, so I'm going to hurt them back. Uh, some have called this the don't get mad but get even temptation. So don't get mad, just get even temptation. I've even seen bumper stickers on that one. You know, I don't, I, don't get, I don't get even, I get ahead, right? Uh, so temptation sprang from persecution in other ways as well. For example, there was this inclination to use persecution as a justification to sin. In other words, what I'm trying to say, some of those who were suffering for their Christianity were reasoning along these kind of lines. They, they were saying, like, my life is so difficult that I am entitled to do whatever I can to make my life more pleasurable. I'm entitled to be happy. Well, people have often allowed their difficulties to give them some sort of entitlement. A lot of people feel that way. Some of them have even allowed themselves to conclude that God then is the source of their temptation. Oh. And so they may have reasoned along these kind of lines, which I have here on the screen, and and James addresses this line of thinking, by the way. But So here's the the line of of reasoning, that God has sent the trial to me. The trial has caused me to be tempted to sin. Therefore, the conclusion is that God has tempted me to sin. I hope you can understand that line of reasoning and and James is going to address that very line of reasoning here for us and so in these verses James is going to move now from trials into temptations in the first part of chapter one here he's addressing trials and we're going to look at the temptation part today how do we actually handle temptation and by the way James is going to help us to clear up the uh this kind of thinking here for us He's going to clear God of the wrongdoing. And he's actually going to accuse the true culprit. He's going, to, he's going to hit the culprit right between the eyeballs, so to speak. So we don't have time to look at the first 12 verses. But please understand there you see that, that the mature Christian is patient in trials. So you want to understand that concept, read those first 12 verses. Now often, these trials end up becoming temptations in our lives. And so if we're not careful, the testings that happen to us on the outside can affect us on the inside and become a temptation. In other words, when our circumstances are difficult, we may find ourselves complaining against God. You, you, might, become, you might become like Job. Uh, you, you might actually question, is, is God love? Uh, you, you might be tempted to resist God's will in your life. And so at this point, 
Satan provides us with an opportunity then to escape our difficulty. And this opportunity then can become a temptation. Now, of course, God doesn't want us to yield to temptation. Uh, yet neither is he going to spare us from that experience. God uses the trials in our life. And so if we're mature, we need, we need to face our testings. We need to face our trials and our, and our temptations. And you say, well, before we read this, this text here, we need to understand what is a temptation. Let's be clear. What is a temptation? Here it is. I like this definition. It's an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way, doing it out of the will of God. So even a good thing can become a bad thing. Are we clear on that? I'll give you an example. Actually, I have a couple examples. Uh, here's my question. Is it wrong to want to do well on an examination, some sort of a test? Is it wrong to want to do good in your job? Well, of course not, but what can happen is that's a good thing, a good desire, but what can happen is we do it in the wrong way. For example, if we cheat, then then it becomes that we we yield to the temptation and we sin if we cheat to pass an examination or to cheat to please our boss or whatever that might be. Then it becomes sin. And so the temptation to cheat is an opportunity to accomplish that good thing. However, cheating is, of course, a bad way to accomplish it. So that's what we're talking about here. That's what James is talking about by a temptation. Good thing, but you got to be careful how you do it, how you go about that. So with that little background, let's look at James chapter 1, verse 13. James 1, 13. James addresses a correct way of thinking here, and he says, Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. James addresses, first of all, the source of our temptation. This is helpful. Where is it coming from? Notice James first of all, says that God, here in verse 13, God cannot be tempted. So, in other words, what is the source of our temptation? It's not God. Okay? We can't blame God. Now, now that phrase, God cannot be tempted, just means that God is untemptable. He is, in other words, He is without the capacity, the ability to be tempted. And so it's the same as being invincible to to outside assaults. In other words, the nature of evil makes it inherently foreign to God. Just the fact that God is good. Uh, he, he, he can't be evil. 
And, and so the reality is God and evil exist in, in really two distinct realms that never meet. They never come together. And he has no vulnerability to evil. And it's utterly, he, he's utterly impregnable, if you will, to its onslaughts. And he's aware of evil. Don't get me wrong. Satan was tempted, or sorry, not Satan. Even Jesus was tempted when he was here on earth. But he's untouched by it. He's untouched. And so what is the source of temptation then? If it's not God, verse 14 tells you where your temptation comes from. It comes from within us. So the temptation, the source of temptation is from within a person. Any person. Notice verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So it's your own evil desires. Your Some Bibles might call it lust. Lust is just a desire. It's your inner cravings, if you will. And, and so you might be tempted to say, well, Satan made me do it, <laughs> like I used to do when I was a teenager. Uh, I'll remind you, my friend, Satan can't make you do anything. It's your own evil desires, your lust, that is causing you to sin. Satan can tempt you, but he can't make you do anything. All right? And James elaborates on this in chapter 4. If you want to look at that, it's on the screen here. James 4, verse 1. He asks this question, well, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? In other words, where is this, <laughs> this kind of sin coming from? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So notice, where's the source of the sin coming from? It, it is from within you and from within me. So, what are the steps? James gives us the steps in temptation. I hope you'll find these helpful. They are to me. Uh, so we need to understand this. So look at this. First of all, he says, number one, your desire. It starts with your desire there in first, verse 14. So each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So in biblical language here, desires are not something that's intrinsically evil. It just means a strong longing for something. Again, I like to give examples, so hopefully you can understand this. Uh, I hope this one works for you. For example, a woman's beauty is intrinsically good. So, ladies, God made you the way you are. Uh, and I thank God that on, on the whole, in general, women are beautiful. It's intrinsically good. It's something that's innocent. And by the way, beauty by itself never forces anybody to sin, although sometimes guys guys like to claim that as their excuses, don't they? It's like, oh, I couldn't help myself. You know, she was so beautiful. <laughs> All right? Well, don't blame her for the way God made her. Uh, we, we ought to be capable of noticing God's handiwork with perfect innocence. It is possible to have a detached admiration of someone. I guess another example of that might be, some, some of you might enjoy looking at art. You go to, 
you go to an art museum, right? And you look at beautiful paintings of, done by people who are made in God's image. I mean, you say, how can they draw us as beautiful paintings? Well, they're made in God's image. God made them that way. So they can draw beautiful things. And you, you can go to an art gallery and you have this detached admiration. You're not lusting, per se, after the painting, right? However, many men just have difficulty in this area. And there's, by the way, there's nothing wrong with desiring beauty. But if that desire that James is talking about here ends up becoming really strong, you get this strong longing, a lust, then we've sinned against God in the process. So where does the fault lie then? Well, ladies, don't blame yourself. Don't blame yourself for the way God made you. God makes you beautiful. You praise God for that. Give Him the glory. But neither can we blame God. So the fault lies with the man, in other words, who has turned his desire into this strong lust. Okay. I hope you understand a little bit what I'm talking about, what James is talking about by, by desire. Uh, another thing that might be helpful to you, if that one doesn't work for you, particularly ladies, uh, sometimes we have a, a desire for friendship. A lot of people do. Nothing wrong with that. That's not intrinsically evil. It's a, a desire for friendship is actually a good and innocent thing. However, if that desire for friendship actually causes you to disobey God and disobey His Word, then guess what? You're sinning. What was actually a good thing has now become a bad thing. So that's, that's, that's what we're talking about here by desire. Now, while we're all vulnerable to the sins that Scripture forbids, each person has their own set of special desires or lust. Okay? Uh, so what, what you might be tempted with may not bother someone else. Uh, what is a temptation to one person may not appeal to another person. For example, religious legalist or libertines have different desires one's drawn to some secret sin and the other is drawn to some open evil but just as one type of a bait or a, or a lure works well with one kind of a fish doesn't mean that that particular lure is going to work on another kind of fish okay i don't know if fishing analogy illustration works for you but I enjoy fishing, and, and and fish are different. God made them different. Not all fish like looking at the same things, eating the same things. And it's, it's the way people are, too. One person's passion is another person's repulsion, right? You know, for example, somebody might be attracted to, addicted to drugs. Well, praise God, that's not an issue for me, all right? But that doesn't make me any better than that person. It's just God made me different. Uh, but but I might have a lust that that person doesn't have. So it's it's your own lust that you need to be most concerned about. All right. So the the first step here in temptation is desire. But James moves on uh, in verse fourteen. Notice he mentions deception. I have all D's here that might help you remember this. So we can we can start with the desire, but then we get deceived. Just as as Eve was in the Garden of Eden, she's she sees the fruit, it's desirable, but then, then the serpent, Satan, 
deceived her. And now no temptation appears as temptation. It's not going to appear as temptation, right? It always seems more alluring than what it really is. And James here uses two illustrations to help us understand this deception. And uh, notice the first one in verse 14, James mentions you can be lured. Now, the idea of lured is this idea of baiting of a trap, like like a, a, a mouse trap or a rat trap, right? If you have a mouse or, or a rat you're trying to trap or a possum or whatever it is, uh, you don't generally just stick it out there empty, right? I mean, mo- most mice, rats, possums, or whatever aren't stupid enough to get caught in an empty one, most. And, and so what do you have to do? You have to lure them in. Free cheese, or we put peanut butter on ours. Uh, to catch the mice as they try to come in. Why are you doing that? You know, you're, you're putting out free lunch, free dinner. Why do you do that? So you can lure them in, so they get caught. The other one that that James mentions here to deceive you is the, the word entice. Now this means to bait a hook, like like when you're fishing. Now here's the illustration I, I, I put up here for you. Right? You don't just throw out an empty hook when you're trying to catch a fish. You, you're trying to tempt that fish. You're enticing that fish with something at least looks and smells like it, what it eats. And to a fish, I know that doesn't look very nice to you, but to most fish, that looks really yummy. And, and you can catch a fish with that because that's what God designed them to eat. And so the hunter or a uh, a fisherman, they'll use bait to attract, catch their prey. Why are they doing that? Why is James talking about this? Because no animal is, is usually, they're a little smarter than, you know, they're not going to be deceived by an empty trap. They're not going to step into a trap unless there's something there to entice them. A, a fish isn't going to just knowingly bite onto a bare hook. And so the idea is to, then you hide the trap. You somehow hide the hook so that they're deceived. Temptation always carries with it some bait that appeals to our desires. Some Bible examples that come to my mind are Lot. You know what happens to Lot in the end. Now, Lot ends up in Sodom. How did he end up in Sodom? (laughs) He goes from being with his uncle Abraham, he ends up in Sodom. Well, he, he probably wouldn't have ended up there if he hadn't seen, as the Bible says, he saw the, the well-watered plains of Jordan. So he's looking at this nice grass for, for his livestock to eat so that you know he, maybe he wanted to become wealthy. And so he, he's kind of camping out down there near Sodom and eventually ends up in Sodom. So he, the desire ends up leading to deception. Another one that comes to my mind is David probably would have never committed adultery if if he had seen the hook, if he had seen the trap. If, in other words, what I'm saying is if he had seen the consequences of his sin, he probably would have never committed adultery. You say, well, what were the consequences? Well, the Bible says that David's baby died. Uh, one of his very brave soldiers died. Uh, his daughter Tamar was raped. 
the Bible says that the sword would never leave David's house. So he had he had all kinds of family issues. Other family members had, had death. So it was there was a lot of problems, a lot of consequences. You see, the bait keeps us from seeing the consequences of the sin. So David's just focusing on a beautiful woman. If he had seen the hook and the trap, he, he, he would have turned away, wouldn't he? Probably. And so one thing that's going to help me not to sin, one thing that has helped me not to sin, I hope you can relate to this, is thinking about the consequences. Don't be deceived. Look at the trap. Look at the hook. I'll give you a short list of some things that that I wrote down as I was thinking about David. One day I was thinking about David. I mean, here's a guy after God's own heart, right? He he commits immorality, murder. He's not loving God with all his heart. He's not loving people as himself. How did that happen? Well, here's here's some things that I've... I was challenged one day, write some things down. What would happen? Reveal the hook so you're not deceived by the hook and the trap. Here's some things that I've written down that that would happen to me if I was immoral. All right, And I did this, and I was challenged to do this, to reveal the hook so you're not deceived by it. For example, if I committed immorality, I'd be grieving God, displeasing the the very one whose, whose opinion matters the most to me. I would lose reward and commendation from Jesus Christ. I'd have to look Jesus in the face one day. I'd be standing there at the judgment seat of Christ. I'd have to give account of why I did that. I, 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 I have to face God's chastening. Because Hebrews tells us that God loves those whom He chastens and He disciplines His children. Um, there would be of course, I'd, I would hurt my wife, I would hurt my children, I'd, I'd hurt you, and who knows, anybody else associated with me. I'd, I'd shame my church family. Uh, you can get possible diseases and bring shame upon myself. So those are just some of the things I wrote down. Those are all things revealing the consequences of my sin, so that that it's really taking the bait off the hook. It's revealing the hook for what it is. And if you've never done that sort of thing, I encourage you to, to do that. So don't look at the bait. We need to look to Christ. Okay? Step number three of temptation is disobedience. So if it starts with desire. You're deceived. And then disobedience happens. Verse 15 which says, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. So this is that third step. And so when the plans start to be made to fulfill that desire, then you're in trouble. Uh, This stage usually involves our will, uh, our conscious decision to pursue that lust until it's satisfied, and then because the will's involved, this is the stage where the most guilt lies. See, it's not a sin to be tempted. But what has been longed for and then rationalized is now consciously pursued here as a matter of choice. And so the solution is, well, don't meditate on it. Your will has to say no. No. Uh, Jesus called it radical amputation. 
you, you treat sin like you treat gangrene in your leg. If you have gangrene in your leg, this infection can spread up from your foot and eventually kill you. What do you, what do, you do? How do you stop it from killing you? You amputate the leg. Jesus says, if your eye offends you, you pluck it out. He didn't mean that literally, by the way. The, the point is radical amputation of the sin. If your hand offends you and causes you to sin, cut your hand off. Again, not literally, uh, because you can still sin even if both your hands are gone. You pluck your, both your eyeballs out, you can still lust. And so you have to deal with it like you deal with gangrene. You, you eliminate the source so you have desire, you're deceived, leads to disobedience, and then James says, ultimate outcome result is death. Look at verse 15. Desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Death. And so disobedience here gives birth to death. Now it may take years for that sin to mature in your life, but when it does, you can, you can write it down. You can guarantee what God says, that the result is going to be death. And if we only believe God's word and, and, and see the final tragedy here, it will encourage us to yield to temptation. So whenever you're faced with a temptation, what do you have to do? You've got to get your eyes off the bait. Get your eyes off that yummy cheese that's sitting on the trap. You've got to look ahead. you got to... See the consequences so you're not deceived. Because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So what's the solution? What is the solution for temptation? Notice what James says in verse 17. Because he says what we need the most is close fellowship with God. So he says that every good, good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, what James is exhorting us to do here is know the goodness of God, that God is always good, always good. See, one of the enemy's tricks in your life and mine is that he wants to Convict, convince us that our Heavenly Father is somehow holding back on you. He doesn't want what's best for you. By the way, same old lie, right? Genesis chapter 3, same old lie. He keeps using it. <laughs> it works, and he's going to keep using it. Same thing he did to Adam and Eve. Oh, you know, God really doesn't want your best interested heart. He's withholding something from you. So go ahead, eat the fruit, and then you'll be like God. So same, our same enemies do the same things. Holding out on us, doesn't really love you, doesn't really care for you. See, the goodness of God is a great barrier here against yielding to temptation. See, if you really believe that God is good, then you're not going to be deceived. And since God is good, we don't need any other person, we don't need any other thing than to meet our, our needs, then do we? You think you have needs, but God is meeting your needs. And so once you, you, you start doubting then God's goodness, you're going to be attracted to offers. 
You're going to be attracted to those offers. You're going to be deceived. And so, my friend, do you know how to defeat sin in your life? Do you know how to defeat it? Here's a lesson I've learned several years ago, not original with me. I, I really learned it when I was reading Hebrews chapter 11, particularly the life of Moses, that you defeat sin with superior pleasure. See, you don't defeat sin by trying to make sin look bad. You defeat the sin by making pleasure look good so that the sin no longer is so pleasurable. But there's something greater. There's a superior pleasure. And this passage mentions four things. I just want to point them out real quick. Number one, James says that God gives only good gifts. Only good gifts. So everything good in this world, where does it come from? From God. All the good things in your life and mine come from God. If it did not come from God, then it's not good. If it comes from God, it has to be good. For example, here's one that some people struggle with. What about the Apostle Paul? God gave Paul a thorn in the flesh. Was that good? Yeah. <laughs> Paul, Paul thanked God for his thorn in the flesh that was given to him by God, even though it was hard. It might seem strange. Whoa, that's a strange gift. Here, I'm going to give you a thorn in the flesh. Uh, some of you might be thinking, no thanks. I don't like that kind of gift. Does God know what he's doing? Well, are you questioning God? God is good. If he's given you a gift, it's good. <laughs> Tremendous blessing. Number two, James mentions that the way God gives is also good. How he goes about these gifts he gives to us is a good thing. It's possible for somebody to give us a gift in a manner that's less than loving. Ever happened to you? Ever received a gift from someone? And, and you felt like that person really wasn't loving me. You just had this, I don't know, the way they said it, or I don't know, the way they went about it. It's, it's possible for somebody to give us a gift that is not so loving. But when God gives a, a blessing to us, He does it in a loving manner. It's important for us to remember that. James also says that he gives constantly. Constantly. These perfect gifts are coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation. Constantly. You may not even notice most of the things that God does for you. Just the fact that you're breathing and you just took another breath and your heart kept pumping. All those are God's good gifts to you. Your brain's thinking. The wires are connected and firing and all these sort of things going on in your body simultaneously, second after second, is God's constant gift to you. And, and the Bible here also says that God doesn't change. Oh, praise God. He's not like us. Not like the weather, right? God never changes. He's always faithful. He's always the same. Always there for us. And always reliable. And so, James goes on to tell us another solution that we need to be aware of. Besides the fact we need to know God's goodness, number two, the, the solution here is a constant response to God's Word. You need to know God's goodness, but you also need to constantly respond to God's Word. If you're not, you are vulnerable 
Because in verse 18, notice what it says, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So because of the ability of sin to deceive us, to, to mask itself, allure may be harmless or appear harmless, might be innocent to your eyes, but in reality it has terrible consequences. And so I want to think about some practical application here. How do we, we need this constant response to God's word. We need to be aware of the lures that our enemies put before us. So what are some lures that may tempt you and may tempt me? Uh, something I learned, oh, is deep idols of my own heart. The deep idols of my own heart. One of them is we need to be aware of the lure of significance. That is a deep idol. We want to feel significant, to feel important. We, we want meaning in life. Uh, you, you might find your significance in your job or your family. You might find your significance in something else, but, but we all try to find our significance in some way or another. And that usually is a big struggle for people. It becomes a deep idol of the heart. And, and, and if, you know, you, you lose your job, for example, and you're trying to find your significance in your job, you're just shattered. You feel nothing. Like, I, my identity crisis is, is out of control. Right? That's, that's what happens sometimes. That's a lure that can tempt you. A second lure is, is this deep idol of comfort. So if it's not significance, it could be comfort in your life. You, you, you want to feel comfortable. You don't want a thorn in the flesh. You don't want any trials. Keep those temptations away. I want an easy, smooth life. Many people have been caught in sins because they allowed themselves to nurture this lie that they deserve to be comfortable. They deserve a certain standard in life. You know, I want enough money or whatever it is, right? That lure of comfort can tempt us. A third lure is this belief there is no evil within us. James addresses that one. Uh, this could be the deep idol of control. I want to be in control. I don't like being out of control. Many people want, they, they want to believe the human beings are essentially good. You ever witness to somebody? Oh man, <laughs> happens to me all the time. So you, you, how do you see yourself? Do you think you're basically a good person? Right? Most people would agree with that, right? Yeah, I'm basically a good person. And so they, they justify themselves by the comparing themselves to the worst people they know. But the reality is there's forces in us that are actually opposed to God. Indwelling sin opposes God. It hides from God, like Adam and Eve after they sinned. You know, go hide in the bushes. Uh, your, your indwelling sin disobeys God. And so the Bible teaches human beings have this capacity for evil. How else can you explain things like the Holocaust? How can you explain all the evil, like Stalin's terror and so forth? You see, if you don't understand the grave danger that you're in, then you're going to make yourself more susceptible to temptation. There's a fourth lure we need to be aware of. It's this belief that sin is not really sin. <laughs> oh, sin isn't so bad. And since sin's not really sin, you don't need to take it seriously. Don't worry. No worries, right? 
one of the ways this is being done today is, is we just change the definition of sin into a disease. You ever notice that? For example, we don't talk about drunkenness. Well, most people don't talk about drunkenness anymore. You're, you know, you're now an alcoholic. You're not a sinner. You just have a disease. In another way, our world is is not taking sin seriously. Is we excuse it. We we say it's a result of our DNA. It's the genes. I can't help myself because of my genes. And so many people say that now they're saying homosexuality is not a sin. It's just the way that you were made. I don't have a choice. It's how I feel. People are born homosexual. They say it's no longer a choice. It's in the DNA. So the reality is we do have a choice, according to God. It is our choice, and and sin is something that is serious, and you do need to deal with it. And so since we need to deal with it, there's a crucial issue here we need to respond to. How are we going to respond then? How? Well, first of all, don't give up. Don't give up. That's the last thing you want to do. You're, you're done for there right from the beginning. Another thing is don't ignore the sin. The proverbial sticking your hand, head in the sand, hoping the problem's going to weigh is not going to, sweeping it under the rub, rug, so to speak, isn't going to help. The other thing James says is don't blame God. Don't blame Satan. They're not the problem. We need to come before God. Confess. Forsake. Ask for His enabling grace. And then do what David did after he was confronted with his sin. Well, what did he do? Psalm 51 tells us, verse 2, it says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. It's right here for you. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So that's the solution. That's what David did. Uh, by the way, there's a fifth lure I need to address before I wrap this up. Here's the fifth lure. That, it's this desire to accuse God of evil intent. James is clearly saying, don't do that. Because in verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And in, in verse 16, James it clearly teaches us this need for spiritual discernment. This kind of discernment allows us to distinguish them between trials and temptations. But it also prevents us from questioning God's character. See, our tendency is, we, at least I'll speak for myself, my tendency is to be like Job. Something happens in my life, I don't like it, and I'm immediately questioning, why is this happening? <laughs> why? If I remember correctly, Job asked 17 or 19 times in the book of Job, why? God never answered why. The solution for Job is you need to know the who. So he takes the last several chapters of the book of Job to show the who. Job needed to see God. needed to know God. God wants us to know Him and to trust Him. So, what what do you believe about God? That is vitally important. So, if you're confronted by temptation, a, a, a trial, misfortune, suffering, well, there's all sorts of things you could do. 
But let me just uh, just wrap it up. Well, here's here's these these lures that we need to be aware of. Let me wrap it up by by just talking about something that was been incredibly helpful to me. They're called the stabilizing truths for noisy souls. <laughs> I have many times been tempted with a very noisy soul, and one of my former professors by the name of Jim Berg came up with this this series called Quieting a Noisy Soul. If you're not familiar with that, I'm hoping to show that, I don't know, sometime in the next couple years. But basically, these truths come from the Bible. I learned them first from Jim Berg, and, and here they are. And in fact, I've got a little plaque in my office with these on it. If you wish to have a copy of it, I'm more than happy to give it to you. But these things I, I want to keep before my eyes and my heart. So when I am tempted to, to, uh, to have a noisy soul, uh, these are the truths that help guide correct thinking. Number one, that God is always good. God is always good. And by the way, God is always great. These are the two main attributes of God. Now underneath those, there's all sorts of things. How does, how does that look in God's way of thinking well here, here's what some of that looks like for me for example god is always good means that god will always meet my genuine needs my genuine needs now my needs the way i think of my needs may not be the same as the way god is thinking you need to be aware of that god might be thinking your need is okay you need a trial you might be thinking no i don't need any trials i've got enough thank you very much God is good, remember? God will always forgive my sin, according to 1 John 1, 9. He will forgive your sin. God will always, sorry, He's always up to something good in my life. Always. Remember the Romans 8, 28, that God's working out His purposes in your life is, is a good thing. The answer is in verse 29, that God is conforming you into the image of Christ. That is the ultimate good that He's up to. And then, another one is that God will always love me personally. We read about that in Romans 8. He will always love me personally. He knows me intimately. He cares. And then the last one, that God will always give me the grace I need, just as He did for Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Yes, He may give you a thorn in the flesh. He may give, give you something that is painful. But He will give you the grace for that. And it is sufficient. So God is always good, but He's always great. And that just means, for example, that God is always in control of all things in your life. God is always present with you. Never leave you. Never forsake you. God is always the same. He's not going to change. And you can count on it. And God is always trustworthy. Unlike me, unlike you, unlike your boss, unlike your family members, God's always trustworthy. And then God is always wise in what He does. What He does is always good and always great. Now, those are just some of the, these truths that you and I need to meditate upon. See, the reason we often give into temptation, we fall to deception, is because of our unbelief. We're deceived. Like Adam and Eve, we're deceived because we don't know God and we're not 
we've fallen prey to this unbelief. We're not knowing Him and trusting Him as He has revealed Himself to be. And so there's no reason why we as Christians have to yield temptation. You don't have to. You choose to. And you, have to, you need to learn to resist its force. Yeah, it's strong. It's real. It's there. And so you can never grow to be spiritually mature unless you're learning to resist that deadly force in your life. That's what James is all about, teaching us how to be mature in Christ. And so here's my proposition for you today. What does God want you to do? My friend, God wants you to believe the right things about Him in order that you would resist temptation. That's the solution to your indwelling sin. That is the solution, according to James, for your indwelling sin. It comes down to unbelief. So what are you believing? Particularly, what do you believe about God? My friend, that's the solution. I know that might sound a little oversimplified, but it's amazing. As you meditate and grow on this this beautiful knowledge and truth of God, you'll find yourself understanding a superior pleasure that will be so great that the hook and the trap is so obvious and looks so ugly. And, And as you grow in that superior pleasure, that doesn't appear to be so nice anymore. It's not so attractive. And so God wants you to believe the right things about Him. So you would please Him, glorify Him, and be able to resist temptation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, that we would truly behold wonderful things from Your Word. May Your Spirit enable us to understand, to see these truths. Give us this grace. We need it. Uh, we want to please you. We want to glorify you. And we, we know we can't do that when we're not obeying you, doing your will. So may we be grieved by our sin. May we be grieved by our fallenness. May superior pleasure look, look so good. May we know it. Know it well so that the temptation to sin no longer is that attractive to us. Cause us to grow up, as James is exhorting us to do, that we would be spiritually mature. May your Spirit guide us, enable us, teach us, and fill us and control us, that we would we would walk in the Spirit so we would not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.